I have a friend who laughs so much when he says, but where did you go in the middle of nowhere? In? And I said, look, I have a little shop store where I can buy my groceries. I have this little bank and I have a pharmacy and there are two bars. And then he said, why do you have a pharmacy? Why do you need a pharmacy if you have two bars? <laughs> Hello and welcome to Stephanomics, the podcast that brings the global economy to you. And that was Loli Garcia, one of many who's used the pandemic as a chance to escape city life. Where we work, how we work, what we're wearing when we work, is that all really going to change forever? Or in a year or two's time, will we wake up and find we're all pretty much doing what we were doing before COVID-19? It's a question we keep coming back to on this show, because if work changes the entire shape of our economy might change too. Cities could shrink. A lot of low-skilled jobs in those cities could disappear. And governments could find themselves having to completely rethink how they try to tackle poverty and stimulate growth. In a minute, you'll hear me talk about all of that to Sven Smit, one of the co-authors of a series of important reports on the future of work and the global economy post-Covid. We'll also hear why the Irish government is so keen to keep people from going back to work in their city offices, they're even going to encourage them to work in their local pub. But first, here's our Spanish economy reporter, Jeanette Newman, in Madrid and a quiet corner of northeast Spain. I'm walking through some outdoor dining spots in the Huertas neighborhood, in the center of Madrid. This neighborhood has history. Centuries ago, the author of Don Quixote and other legendary writers lived here. It has beautiful plazas with fountains and great tapas bars, many of which are open. Despite these charms, apparently, not many people want to live here. To my left, there's an apartment for rent. To my right, another. There are several dozen apartments for rent just a few minutes from where I'm walking. So many empty apartments is pushing down rental prices. They fell around 10% at the beginning of this year in Madrid compared to last. In major cities around the world, the story is the same. In some central parts of Sydney, London, New York, and Chicago, prices are falling. The decline shows one way the pandemic has changed us. Urban centers have become less appealing. That's pushed some city dwellers to move out. At the same time, it slowed the number of people who would normally move in. This ditching and dodging has major implications for rental prices, inflation, the cost of housing, and inequality. Let's go to the tiny town of Uced in northeast Spain. I traveled there to speak with recent city transplants about their new rural life and their post-pandemic plans. I wanted to find out how permanent this global shift away from cities might be. A century ago, nearly 1,500 people lived in Uced. Now, there are 200. The town is located in an area of Spain that has an average of around seven inhabitants per square kilometer. There are few other places in Europe that are so sparsely populated, except the Scottish Highlands and Lapland. That's right, Finland's sub-Arctic wilderness. For decades then, Uset has been a place where people generally didn't want to live. The pandemic has changed that. New residents like Loli Garcia are moving in. I have a friend who laughs so much when he says, but... Where did you go in the middle of nowhere? In 
And I said, look, I have a little shop store where I can buy my groceries. I have this little bank that already stole my car when I went to take some money out. I have church and I have a pharmacy and there are two bars. And then he said, why do you have a pharmacy? Why do you need a pharmacy if you have two bars? Loli is 39 years old. She works in education and is studying to become a kindergarten teacher. In September, she left her rental apartment in Madrid and moved to Usted with her kids. She wanted space and to be near nature and family. Loli has deep ties to Usted. She spent much of the pandemic in the home that belonged to her great-grandmother. Loli enrolled her two boys in the town's school, boosting the total number of pupils to nine. For small towns like Usted, a local school is an existential bellwether. When we came, like people, you could feel that people only love me because I have two kids. <laughs> a town official called Loli. Because she had enrolled two kids in school, she had the right to two plots of municipal farmland, a holdover from an earlier era when the town administered common lands for villagers. She didn't want the farmland, but she says the town has given her something less tangible and more profound. And the thing that I like very much of said is the fact of uh, nature and freedom, is the fact of time. It seems like you have time again to live. Something that in the cities, no matter how much you try to have time, sometimes you always feel running after it. I don't know yet if I, I'm going to be a rural woman <laughs> for the rest of my life, <laughs> but maybe for two or three more years, it's a fact. If Loli and others stay, it would slow the exodus that Alberto Sanchez has seen diminish his hometown. Alberto is 33 years old and an historic preservation architect. He counts the cost of depopulation in Usted's abandoned buildings. Alberto bought one several years ago. He was supposed to spend part of 2020 in Madrid doing research for his dissertation. Instead, he spent much of the pandemic restoring the property. I think that this project comes out of both my a bringing in a depopulating town, seeing depopulation firsthand as a kid. Even during my lifetime, uh, my town lost about half of its population. When I was a kid, we had around 400 people, and now we have, you know, around 200. He shows me around his property, a 17th century manor house. There's a coat of arms on the facade, basking in the sharp Spanish sunlight. The house is regal, despite the collapsed ceilings and piles of rubble. I thought that I needed to, to buy it in order to save it from other destinies that will have awaited her, including demolition, which was perhaps the most likely one. Alberto bought the house from a family who lived here until 1965. At the time, tens of thousands of Spaniards were decamping to cities in search of better opportunities. The house is as the family left it. Dishes in the pantry covered in a thick layer of dust. Old paintings in the attic. Alberto says the family planned to return but never did. And look at all the pots hanging there. Yep. It's beautiful. But again, it's like they left and then we'll come back, we'll come back. And, and then, they never came and back. And they never came back. Yep. For Alberto, the house is a time capsule. It tells a story about Usted and rural life in Spain. Despite the challenges, Alberto has become more optimistic about that story during the pandemic. What I know is that 
four houses were built last year in this town, four new houses, which is a lot for a town this size. And many people are realizing that it's much cheaper to live in a town like this than to live in a city, especially in large capitals like Madrid and Barcelona, where housing is becoming impossibly expensive. Some people, though, are worried the charms of small-town living will wear off once the pandemic fades. I traveled deeper into what's known as La España Vacía, Empty Spain, to hear about the challenges. In the town of Orea, I spoke to Manuel Marco. He's 51 years old. He and his wife moved to this town of around 200 people just before COVID-19 hit. During the pandemic, he's been happy to see more than a dozen new residents come to Orea. But he's worried they won't stay and that others will continue to stay away. The reason? Slow internet. The Spanish government has pledged to spend billions of euros in EU pandemic recovery funds to ensure fast internet for all. But Manuel doesn't want to wait. So he's hatched a plan to tap the fiber optic cables of a nearby power plant and extend them to Orea and several other small towns. He walks me down to Orea's main street and shows me where he would install the cables. From that entrance to the town over there, all along this road, straight down to the end. My decision to try to install telecommunications in these towns is about my intention to help these towns repopulate, so people can invest, so people can work, and so that the young people don't leave and these towns don't die out. What does all this mean for the economy? I spoke to HSBC Global Economist James Pomeroy. So what you've ended up getting is a big drop in rental demand and a big drop in rental prices in big cities. And you're seeing this in pretty much everywhere we can get data, be it in the US, be it in Europe, be it in Asia, where rental prices in big cities are plummeting. And that really matters for inflation, particularly in the US, when rents make up about a third of the inflation basket. Cheaper apartments are good news for young renters in big cities. But James points out there's a flip side. The problem you've got if you're one of those young people is that the same time as this rental dynamic is happening, house prices are going through the roof because you've got this weird environment where all the people who are geographically mobile, who have kept their jobs during the pandemic because of being able to remote work, have saved a load of money and have got almost zero interest rates or historically low interest rates. And what's that? what that's meant is that house prices pretty much everywhere in the world are soaring. The pandemic, in that sense, has exacerbated income inequality because you're taking that home ownership even further out of reach um, of a younger generation who already was going to struggle to become homeowners. That's why some young people have seized on the pandemic to seek out places where home prices haven't gone up. People like Manuel are trying to invest in infrastructure to make sure they stay. I think about the people who left Ucid and other small Spanish towns decades ago, streaming into cities like Madrid and Barcelona. Their exodus helped to concentrate economic and political power in urban areas. It drained many parts of the Spanish countryside of vitality. Many of those who left Ucid decades ago thought they would eventually return to small town life. And they never did. Maybe this time, some of those who've left the city to live in the country will be the ones who never go back. Jeanette Newman, Bloomberg News. Now, one of the questions raised by Jeanette's piece is, should governments be doing anything differently as a result of these changes in behaviour? And it turns out the Irish government thinks they should not only be adapting their policies, but act 
actively encouraging these developments as part of their strategy to boost rural areas. Dara Doyle is Bloomberg's Bureau Chief in Dublin. Dara, when I read Jeanette's script, I sort of dimly remembered I'd read something about Ireland uh, wanting to do this. But what exactly is the strategy? Yeah, so um, back in the spring, the government launched uh, this new sort of rural development strategy that would involve, that would encourage people to, you know, continue to work from home where many people have moved back to, moved out of Dublin over to the west of Ireland, the Midlands, that kind of place. So it's an idea where you can kind of keep people you know, in those areas. How are they going to do it? Number of ways. There's a couple of kind of key points that they've talked about. So one thing, for example, is they, they want to develop a whole network of remote working homes. I guess a country, you know, we work scenario, possibly, if you can imagine that. In pubs, uh, I thought. Is, that, is it going to be in old pubs? Yeah, p- pubs have been mentioned. <laughs> I will say, if you have ever been in a Dublin pub uh, or an Irish pub at 11am in the morning, I'm not particularly sure it's the nicest environment to work. <laughs> in my own experience, it's not somewhere I want to be at 11am in the morning after a busy uh, Thursday night uh, in Limerick or something. So, uh, yeah, p- so absolutely, um, these remote hubs, including possibly pubs, have one idea. Another idea is, you know, possibly tax breaks to keep people, uh, you know, in, in a rural environment. Although, again, I don't think they can be very significant. Look, it's hard to know how significant these things are going to be. I mean, I thought it was ironic that the uh, our Deputy Prime Minister, Leo Radker, when he when he's announcing part of the strategy, actually called us to a press conference um, rather than do uh, rather than do the launch over Zoom. They did it at a press conference in Dublin, which I thought was kind of ironic. We, we couldn't work from home while he was launching the strategy. So, uh, None of the measures have been costed. They're all very aspirational. And um, it's, you know, it's, it's a nice idea, but I think we're going to have to wait and see about how effective they're going to be. I mean, it's quite interesting for people uh, listening from elsewhere in the world because we've tended to think that governments will be broadly encouraging people back to work because they're so worried about those jobs and businesses in city centres that we rely on so much. So, so why is it that, that Ireland is, is not worried about that so much? So I think there's one key factor. I mean, possibly more than any other country in Europe, um, Ireland is incredibly lopsided. Around 25% of the population is crammed into Dublin, um, pushing property prices inc- you know, incredibly high. For such a small you know, a European city perched on the edge of Europe, you'd expect housing prices to be kind of reasonable. That's not the case. You could pay, I don't know, six, seven, eight hundred thousand to buy a nice family home in Dublin. And that's partly because some of the pressure that's um, the population pressure that, that's in Dublin. Um, and the same applies to infrastructure. Our transport systems is cram- are crammed up. Uh, buses are full at, at, at all points. So in a way, it's an opportunity to, to kind of move people away uh, out of Dublin and release some pressure on the capital city, which is under tremendous kind of uh, yeah pressure. I would I mean, say. I guess that I mean that pressure is partly as a result of Ireland's great success uh, in in recent years at attracting big international companies to to Dublin and maybe a few more financial sector jobs recently um, jobs moving from London as a result of as a result of Brexit but we've had so much talk on this podcast and elsewhere about cracking down on uh, the sort of race to the bottom mentality on corporate taxation and Ireland has built its development strategy on having the low, lowest tax rate attracting those big companies partly on that basis. Do you think the government's also worried about that model long term? 
I mean, I, you know, first of all, I'm not sure I'd agree with the race to the bottom strategy. Uh, definitely, I'm shocked <laughs> that you'd use such a term uh, in that kind of context. And um, look, I think there are concerns around the model, but these aren't really to do with the pandemic. They're to do with the changes coming in the international tax system. You know, I've been reporting on you know taxes for maybe 15, 20 years, and this is probably the point where I see government most worried that their 12.5% rate is 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 under threat, is under pressure. And um, look, the argument coming from the Irish government is that you know there are other factors that attract companies to Ireland. If the fact that it's a relatively well well educated workforce, it's a relatively cheap workforce. We we offer you know access to the um you know easy access to the European market. So without sounding like a shill for the Irish government, they would argue that there are you know other advantages above and beyond tax but there's no doubt that um that, that they are concerned that the model which is you know it's incredibly important as you said uh, as i was saying to you earlier on about one in five uh, irish workers are employed directly or indirectly by u.s firms which are based here so it's a huge it's a huge factor but i think that also including you so, including, including me <laughs> not that we'd ever say that was a motivation uh, no for... no clear, clear, clearly not um but but uh, so but i think you know and it kind of goes back to your question about this will this tra- remote strategy working to me ultimately there is a desire among a lot of workers to move out of dublin to be based where they're from and you know live in a nice part of the country up in the west of ireland or whatever but it'll come down to what employers are prepared to kind of accept like you know will google be happy w- with its staff to to be 300 miles away you know will facebook be happy with somebody to be you know down in cork or you know do people have to be in the office to to, 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 to attend meetings as we return to normality over the next year or so. So ultimately, I think, the, the, just going back to your original question, the, the success or, or otherwise the strategy will largely depend on what those kind of companies decide, what the model is kind of going forward. And I know we, we see lots of you know commentary now about like hybrid working and it's all going to change, it's always going to be very different. I kind of wonder sometimes, two years' time, this is all very different. Is it? Are we all going to be in a different situation? Uh, you know, are we all going to be sort of working half time from, from home? I, I'm not sure. I guess while I have you uh, sitting in Dublin and I can see there aren't very many people in the office with you right now, um, I should I should ask you how Ireland's doing in the recovery. I mean, we've got quite a, a big gap opening up between the UK and the US on the one hand and uh, continental Europe um, in the pace of recovery right now. And that's very slow pace of the rollout of, of vaccines. Um, where does Ireland fit into that? So as Everett Ireland, it's a, it's a fairly complicated picture because we have these huge multinationals, your Googles, your Facebooks, your big pharma companies. The headline numbers in Ireland look really good. In fact, I think we're the only country in the EU to actually grow last year because we had these like massive export figures. But of course, that doesn't always translate into jobs. So at the same time, we had that. We had 20% unemployment because retail, bars, restaurants were closed down. Um, and that's continued to be the situation into the first quarter and the first half of this year. Um, we're under a very hard lockdown still. Bars, restaurants, non-essential stores, bookshops, etc., all still closed. Um, right now, there's no sign of when they're going to reopen. So I think it's around 15, 20 percent of people are still out of work. Um, so, so things at the moment are, are tough for people. I will say I would expect a, f- a massive rebound in the second half of this year because, like the UK and elsewhere, people have, have a ma- if you if you've been looking to keep your job. You've amassed a lot of savings. There's going to be a massive consumer boom, I think, in the second half of the year, and that will be married with the continued success of your of your of your export sector, your Facebooks, your Googles, your pharma companies. So I so things are aren't great right now, but I suspect the second half of the year, I think we'll see bars, restaurants, non-essential stores reopen maybe June, early July. People will be gone on holidays again. I think we'll have a very big rebound in the second half of the of this year. It will be my sense. Dara Doyle, thanks very much. Thank you, Stephanie. 
So we've now had two on-the-ground perspectives from Spain and Ireland on people working differently, uh, maybe, the other side of this pandemic, and maybe governments planning differently in response. So I thought we should get an expert take on these issues and pull some of the strands together by talking to Sven Smith, who's one of the co-chairs of the McKinsey Global Institute and a co-author of three important reports which the Institute has put out recently on the world after COVID-19. Sven, uh, thanks very much uh, for coming on Stephanomics. Um, I mean, those reports, they tackle not just the changing world of work, but also changing consumer behaviour and indeed whether we're going to see more innovation and growth uh, coming out of this crisis. Um, But let's focus just for now on the changing world of work piece. I should start, I guess, by asking, does your research support the idea that that work is going to be more widely distributed in a geographical sense, less concentrated in cities as a result of the pandemic? So, um, Stephanie, thanks for having me. Um, I think it does support that. Um, You know, the future of work has been a conversation that was already there pre-COVID. And it used to say that 50 percent of tasks could be automated with available technology. But the good news was that there would be equal amount of jobs gained as lost roughly, even it was so that the net gain was actually slightly positive. So the future work was actually nicely in balance. If you look at the shifts that are now happening, which is remote work, which is e-commerce, which is automation, they are accelerating the pre-COVID trends. And with that, they also um, uh, shift, I think, Uh, the tension in future work faster. On the point of geospatial distribution of work, uh, that is accelerating because of the remote work, which is a new one. And I think the one thing that we say in our report is that the new lens that COVID has brought beyond the acceleration is basically the notion that proximity is a new lens to look at it. When is it needed and when is it not? And We at least think that one more day of remote work per week is possible for the average of the workforce. And that would, of course, mean that people could live outside cities for more of their time, at least. Uh, And commutes and so on could be sort of dampened a little bit from that and the the pressure on cities. So I think there is a potential. Uh, We don't see it as, you know, people, everybody will basically no longer work at all together in, in a physical space because people still need to meet. I mean, you talk about the pressure on cities and we heard about it in Dublin, but in some sense, cities have also been the salvation for quite a lot of economies. It's been the great thing that you could bet on the last 10 to 20 years that that there would be more jobs and more uh, prosperity being driven by cities. If you're a government, should you be just thinking that that model has been turned on its head or has it just been toned down a bit? I would say it's a shift, not a on its head. Uh, so when we say you go from average about one day a week remote work to two days a week, so adding a day to the average workforce, of course, but for some parts of the workforce, it's much more and others, it's much less. That is not yet turning the model up at its head, but you see impacts on rent prices already. You see some impacts on where people choose to live and so on. So it is a real shift, whether that's something that then will accelerate or it sort of is a level shift, I think that the jury's still out. And there's a big uh, inequality piece because uh, the people, as we've learnt over the months, the people who can work from home and will maybe be taking advantage of those opportunities, buying houses in the country and bidding up prices there, 
um, are people who are already relatively well off, uh, whereas the, the sort of lower half of the income distribution, what, what are all these changes going to mean for them? So I think it is, um, you know, disadvantaged groups are going to be impacted more. I think there's two kinds of pressures that we need to take into account. As I said, pre-COVID, the jobs gained, jobs lost was in balance and even slightly positive. We think about 100 million more jobs will be displaced by COVID and faster because everything is going fast. Across lots of different, across how many countries? I'm just trying this to get a sense OECD. of that number. OECD. And so you get 100 million more jobs displaced earlier. So it used to be lots of jobs displaced, to more than 200 million, but you get off that 200 million, you get 100 million that are, let's call it, earlier. And by being earlier, the mismatch might be bigger, which means that reskilling needs to go a lot faster. One of the things that makes this makes it all easier is if you have faster growth. And the big thing that determines whether or not we do grow uh, more quickly uh, is productivity. Um, we've had relatively slow productivity in the last growth in the last few years and making more stuff with the same number of people. Uh, if you listen to what you're talking about in terms of uh, more automation and more things online, um, people working differently, it sounds like productivity is going to go up. Is that what you found in, in your so report? What we wrote in the report, Productivity and Growth, is that the productivity potential has accelerated and could actually lift one or two points uh, in multiple brackets. Uh, and therefore, the productivity potential exists for a significant growth. And so we if, should say, sorry, just but one or two percentage points for productivity, that's a big if, deal yeah. because the average is between one and two potentially. Yeah. So, yeah. so we think that on a GDP per capita basis, if you have the nice world of that productivity and demand, you can get to a three-ish percent growth for the next decade. If you, however, are in a place where the demand doesn't come and this productivity stays tepid, as you described, you know, you're more in the below one percent. Uh, and of course, you have another scenario where the productivity comes, the demand doesn't, and that will lead to lots of labor tension again, because then basically we use the productivity to do the same work with less. You know, the, the Goldilocks are that we do the productivity and demand. And the one thing that we have uh, learned, I think, in COVID is it is possible to stimulate the demand. We can have a whole debate about that. Point. But the reality is, we have secured an economy uh, in 2020, uh, and we're probably going to come out with a reasonable economy now, uh, uh, because we support it. And so th then demand and supply over time could be in sync. If it's not in sync, this productivity will lead to more tension on the job market. Pressure on the job market, sorry, I should say. So there's a, I mean, there is a big difference in those two scenarios, and it feels like uh the, the the lower the demand that you see the more likely you're going to have a this very unequal outcome with you know even more even worse impacts for the people who've already not done that well out of the last 10 years or so so if you're a government trying to make sure that you're in the good scenario and not the bad scenario what should you be doing right now i think this exit out of the stimulus area needs to be very carefully done. And it's not easy because it's stuff that we haven't done at this scale uh, 
ever, I think, or in a, at least in a long time uh, at this broad base across the world. But if you kind of pull back before the engine runs, you might actually get a temporary standstill and you're more in the negative scenario. If you hold it too long, of course, it could be overheating, which is another discussion. But what you would love to sort of say is, so take the stimulus gas off when the underlying engine runs, because then, you know, it will sort of have this, and, and that that's a careful balancing act. If you look at recoveries in the US that we studied over the last 70 years, you had ones where it was in sync, post-war is of course one of the bigger ones, um, uh, and where it was less in sync. Uh, and uh, also there have been disparities about that between the US and Europe, I would say in the global financial crisis. The US had more of a multiplier effect of stimulus at the outset, not even at the highest levels than Europe had. At the moment, Europe is actually catching up on the stimulus levels. So I think in that area, there's a lot of learning going on, whether that will be enough to put the demand and supply in sync. But is any demand the right kind of demand? Because this has obviously been one of the debates about the stimulus in the US. It's it's massive in scale. Yeah. But one of the criticisms has been, you know, from the likes of, of Larry Summers and others, is that you know if you're going to spend two trillion dollars and you want to be maximising the the long term impact on growth and productivity, this isn't necessarily how you would spend the money. I mean, do you think is there a risk that uh, this money is going to be sort of gone in the next year or two, and you're still left with? a need to do the kind of investment infrastructure and other things that you talk about in your report in order to really make that longer term growth come through? You would always prefer good long term growth as long as it also has the short term growth in it. So because you don't want that short term dip. So there's there's a nirvana here that you, you would like to have. Um, I think we're, I would say, in an experimental ch- uh, phase where we're learning how this will work out. Uh, whether the productivity potential will be balanced in the right way or not. I, I, anyone, like we say, you can't predict the business cycle. I don't think you can really predict how this will fully play out in the sentiments of people uh, in how it will be spent. But of, of course, you would love a fair share of this to go to long-term investment. But at the same time, you don't want uh, a massive restructuring wave to occur right now at the moment. The so, so that, so that handover thing is, I think, the thing where we're now learning. We knew little about the virus. I think we know very little about this handover moment. Where you need to keep people in business, but you also are trying to achieve structural change. I mean, yeah. it is, it's yeah. a difficult balance. Just going back to the world of work, the big numbers that you were talking about in terms of people having to change jobs and reskill. Um, you know, the great thing about your research is that you're always looking at experience around the world. Um are there positive stories you can tell about reskilling those workers? Because a lot of governments, certainly in the UK, there's a feeling that we're just not very good at getting people from one sector into another if they perhaps don't have yeah. the right kind of skills. So I think there are a couple of angles of positivity here. One is I think companies are taking more responsibility for this task. Let's just be clear, this is also out of self-enlightened interest uh, because many of the workers you need in the future are not available in the places where people are located. So companies are taking a larger share of this uh, work in retraining their workers. Another interesting thing, which is a more a policy um, idea that is, I think, getting more traction, which is that it's no longer about job to job, degree to degree, 
but it's task to task. So let me give you an example. If you have a job with 10 tasks and the new job had another 10 tasks, it could take four years to relearn it. Whereas if you go from 10 tasks to you specialize in two tasks, the relearning could be one or two years. And so that thing gives a little bit more of potential for speed of reskilling. And then from, from those two tasks, people can, of course, then upskill to more tasks. But it's no longer directly, if you go away from, you have to have the full degree for the full job to something that is more doable in reskilling, you open up the gates. For that, some regulation changes are sometimes needed because the regulation is sometimes oriented towards jobs with full degrees rather than the task level. And it's actually at the task level where the change is happening. I guess finally, we should say, I mean, do you ever think about, we, we've, we've, you've written a lot and an enormous amount of energy has been focused on how the world's going to change as a result of COVID. Do you sometimes, uh, maybe in the bath or something, wonder what would happen if in a year's time, everything's exactly the same and we've, we've gone back to work and we've actually decided that we really enjoy being at work five days a week? And uh, a lot of these long-term changes have just not happened. I mean, do, do, do you think that's possible, that this is all just a big overreaction? I think there will be a fair amount of, uh, you know, catch-up demand in parties, in bars, in travel. And we see the early signals of that. Yeah. So uh, business travel, we don't see it yet, but we see it in uh, commercial travel, in personal travel. And I don't think people have lost... The, the need to go on holiday, the need to go be together and so on. I don't think that has changed. But will people make more careful choices for what they will travel in business? Will they make more careful choices when they, to stay one more day at home and be efficient that way? I think that will have shifted. I have a very simple framework and that might help you think about this. If everybody likes what happened, it's going to stay. If nobody likes it, it's not. Let me give you two examples. In telemedicine, on first-line contact, there's a big step up. The doctors actually like it, the patients like it, the regulators like it, and government likes it. So I do think there will be heightened levels of telemedicine in first-line contact. It just got a lot better. Like People actually like digital contact with a bank. However, homeschooling, the kids don't like it, the parents don't like it, and the teachers think it's better done in class. So guess what? When we open schools, we went back. And when they're not open yet, when we open them, we will go back. And so to me, that might be a way to think about what sticks and not. And lots of things will be on a spectrum in between these things. But that might be just a way to think about it. Sven Smith, co-chair of the McKinsey Global Institute. That was very clear. Thank you very much. Thank you. So that's it for this episode of Stephanomics. I'll be back next week with a lot more from around the world. In the meantime, please, if you could take the time to rate the show, it would help us broaden our reach. And for more news and analysis from Bloomberg Economics, you can follow at Economics on Twitter. This episode was produced by Magnus Hendrickson, with special thanks to Jeanette Newman, Alonso Soto, Dara Doyle and Sven Smith. Lucy Meakin is the executive producer of Stephanomics and the head of Bloomberg Podcasts is Francesca Lee.